Hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. And uh, I, I want, I'm going to preach from the Word today, but I have to tell you that it's really tempting for me to just stroll down memory lane for the next hour or so because our hearts are just warmed, even just being with you today, seeing so many familiar faces. All right, how long ago would you guess it was that I became your pastor? Would anybody guess it was a quarter of a century ago? It was 25 years ago this week. How many of you were, were even here? How many of you, I, I was your pastor? A good number of us. Can you imagine that it's been that long? Somebody said to me earlier, I barely recognize you. I thought, well, I was 40 then, I'm 65 now. So there you go. <laughs> So that's how it happens. It's just a wonderful delight to be with you. You know, I, I, my current assignment, I serve as the superintendent for the Nazarene churches on what is called as the West Texas District. But uh, a third of our churches are here in the Metroplex area, and our district starts just about 10 miles that direction when you get over to Highway 360. And I, man, I wish that we could somehow work those uh, boundaries a little bit to where Dallas First Church could be on my district because it would give me an opportunity to be here a little bit more often. It's just a tremendous blessing, though, to be here with Pastor Larry Williams. And, you know, I think of Larry as coming from the West Texas District. In fact, he was serving in one of our churches when he came here as interim, and they would like for him to have stayed to, to be their pastor. Wherever he served, that's what they said. Could he, come, could he just come be our pastor? But the Lord was not leading him. And then when I heard that God had brought him to First Church, I was delighted. And I know that you are as well, and we certainly love Larry. And you know, as I look out across the group, and I just can't start uh, naming everybody that I recognize and, and all of that, but I, I, do, want to, I do want to recognize uh, some uh, of, our, of my colleagues who are, who are here today. And it was, it was great to see uh, Wayne Stallings a moment ago. God bless you, Dr. Stallings. And I think everybody here knows this, but he was the pastor who led through the building project of the construction of the church on this corner. And, and it's just wonderful to, to have Brother and Sister Stallings with us today. And then Cheryl and Linda Stiles. God bless you. Cheryl pastored up the, up the road here in Cedar Hill when I was pastor here, but we developed a close friendship and have maintained that over the years. And I know the Stiles have been serving over in Louisiana until recently, and it's great to have you back in this area where you belong. We just love you and appreciate you so, so very much. And then Todd Newsom. Pastor mentioned Todd a moment ago. But Todd, just raise your hand so everybody can see you. Todd was the youth pastor here at the church when I was here all those years ago. You still look as young. How come everybody else has aged, but you haven't, Todd? You look just, I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, one, or, I, I think it was Opal Swan. He, he thinks it started with Pastor Gilliland, and that may be the case. But somehow along the line, Pastor Gilliland accidentally, I think, referred to him instead of Todd, referred to him with the name Toby. And so that stuck with the senior adults in our church. They've always called him Toby. So when Todd reached out to me and said he was going to be here this week, he, he signed the email, Toby Newsom. So I, I knew who it was. Yeah, it's great to have you here. It's good to see uh, Rob, Rob and Kate Chrysler you know, here. And I'm, I'm only going to mention them because normally Rob was back in the sound booth when I was here working. And that's why it's so good to see him sitting right down here where he should be. We've got a professional running the sound booth. We, we loved each other, but... Well, I was usually so mad at him by the time the service was over, and he was mad at me. <laughs> so we've developed a good friendship over the years. It's great to have you, you here and other very, very close friends who, who are here today as well. I, I thought that the, uh, um, song, or the scriptures that we read a few moments ago were so uh, appropriate 
for us as, uh, well, really, in the upper one-tenth of one percent of the wealthiest people that have ever lived in the history of the world. Here, here we are uh, in American society and in, in our congregation today as well. And it's so good to know that when Jesus met with that wealthy man that we read of a few moments ago, the Scriptures say that he loved him. He did not rebuke him for his wealth, and he did not condemn him for his uh, wealth, but he loved him. But he gave him some advice. He said, you know, for you, the problem is that your wealth has, has encumbered your life, and you need to make a decision. And who's it going to be? Is it going to be, is it going to be the world, or is it going to be me? And, and that's kind of the theme that I've been preaching on my own district. We have 102 churches spread out from uh, Arlington to, to uh, all the way out to Amarillo and points above that. Uh, there's a large immigration population on our district I, of our 102 senior pastors. I recognized 26 of our pastors at our district assembly recently who are first-generation immigrants. And so on, on my district today, there are numerous languages being spoken in several African congregations and Asian congregations and Central and South American congregation, the new Indian congregation, the, uh, the enjoyment of uh, expanding our borders and receiving others has been part of the real joy of my ministry in recent years. I do want to stop before I get into this message and, and take an opportunity to say thank you to this congregation and many of you who were here when I was the pastor and first came here 25 years ago for the extreme generosity that you showed to me and my family. We were just returning back to the United States after serving for five years at the Nazarene Theological College in, in South Korea. And we, we, we didn't have anything. Uh, we used some of our savings to purchase some furnishings, but we didn't have blankets or sheets or towels or, or any uh, silverware or dishes. So the list goes on and on. And I will never forget that we were contacted by the church secretary who said, before you move here, we'd like you to go to Dillard's and register as a newly married couple because we would like to have a shower for you when you arrive. You remember? On my first Sunday here, our first Sunday here as a family, um, the entire fellowship hall was stacked high with generous, and I mean generous, gifts from this congregation to our family as we returned to the United States. We still have all of those. We still use those towels. We still sleep on those sheets, I think, even. And uh, we, we certainly still have all of those dishes and the silverware and the pots and the pans. You, I, I've told that story now to dozens and dozens of congregations as they are welcoming new pastors. How, what should we do to welcome our new pastor? I, I tell them what Dallas First Church did for us, and they usually respond, well, we can't do that. What's option B? <laughs> We'd like to say it. But my family... We were the recipients of the most generous uh, welcome that any new pastoral family ever received, as far as I know. And this was the church that did it. And so that's one of the reasons we're so honored and happy to be with you today. So now that I am 65 and moving into the, uh, uh, let's say the fourth quarter, but it's probably midway through the fourth quarter of my ministry, which has now been for 45 years since I was 20, uh, I, I'm taking stock of what it is I want to say to the church over the next few years. And it dawned on me not too long ago that there have been 
four, actually five times over the years that the Lord has spoken to me directly. And when I say spoken to me directly, I don't just mean the ongoing still small voice of the Holy Spirit that I and you experience whenever I read or hear the Scriptures, or that uh, oftentimes convicting but frequently encouraging voice of the Lord I receive when I pray and when I minister and even when I preach. There have been five times when I, I heard um, the voice of God speaking to me and saying very important things to me. Now, somebody asked me when I mentioned this, are you saying that there was like an audible voice that you heard? And the answer to that is, no, it was louder than that. I could not have turned the volume up on my radio or held my hand over my ears or done anything not to hear God speak to me on these five different occasions. And I know that it was the voice of God because I, I, there was no denying that it was God's voice. And I, I also know that it was the voice of God because it's always in accordance with the Scriptures. God will never say anything to you that is not in accordance with His, with His Word. And everything we need to know about God and what He wants for us is contained in His Word. But many of us will testify to the fact that on a few occasions at least it's been louder, louder than that. I will say this, that I hesitated to mention this over the years, not so much because I was afraid some people would think I was crazy, although there's that uh, consideration, but primarily because I, would, I worry that someone would think that I'm being prideful. Because I know that sometimes ministers have abused this concept of hearing God's Word and have basically suggested that whatever it is they want to do is what God wants us to do, and that's an abuse of, of power in the church, and I'm, I'm not in favor of that. But I'm going to tell you at the close of the message today uh, one of these times that God spoke to me. I, I want to begin by, by reading Isaiah chapter 53. And this is the great passage of Scripture that we know as the Messianic uh, passage of the Old Testament, the, probably the greatest Messianic passage, and certainly the chapter where the prophet Isaiah points to the coming of the Lord and particularly focuses on the death of Jesus. And so we read that He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, that by His wounds we are healed, and we, we have emphasized the death of Christ on the cross as Isaiah pointed ahead to that. But there's a segment of this passage which is frequently overlooked, the first few verses, and I want to speak to those today because they speak of the childhood of Jesus. And here's what it says in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, and nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised. He was rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hid their faces, Jesus here, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now, that's such an important 
part of the whole concept of the Messiah. Uh, we are looking forward to the return of the Lord, and we believe very genuinely and literally that Christ will return someday. And though he came first as a, as a humble baby in a manger, he'll return as the great conqueror of the universe. But the focus of this passage is upon his humility. And the fact that God chose to become a man, and in doing so, deliberately chose to be born in the most humble, even despised and rejected circumstance that we can imagine. I know this isn't the Christmas season, but it's important to look back on the birth of Christ and recognize all that was happening in this season. You know, in those days, for a child to be born outside of, of uh, a wedlock was a tremendous uh, taboo and a, a great insult to the entire family. And yet, that's exactly how Jesus chose to come. Now, you and I know that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and that Mary and Joseph had never been together and that Mary was a, a virgin when Jesus was conceived. And, but even Joseph didn't believe that at first. Mary tried to explain it to him, but he, he decided in his own mind, I'm going, to, I'm going to have to do something about this and I'm going to do it honorably, but Mary has to be put away. We cannot, we cannot condone sin. That's what they believed in, in welcoming a child like this. And so he decided we'll just, uh, we'll have to put her away. But an angel of the Lord came to Joseph and said, no, you know, this is the Savior of the world. And his conception is, is very, very special. And I don't expect that others will believe this. In fact, still today, some of the church do not. But, but, but you must accept her and move forward. So he did. And the first rejection they experienced was when they arrived in Bethlehem. In those days, the Jewish tradition was so strong that every single person must be received by his own family. But when Jesus uh, came within Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, the first rejection he experienced was at the, at the hands of his own family. There's no room for you here. There wasn't even room for Joseph in a, in a motel. Jesus was born in the most humble circumstance that you can imagine. And the important thing to remember today is he chose that form of birth, and there was a purpose for it. That's what I want to talk about today. It wasn't long after that that uh, Jesus and Mary and Joseph had to flee for their lives. They became, uh, well, not just refugees, they became fugitives. They left in the middle of the night and headed 800 miles to the Egyptian border, uh, traveling at night, probably hiding out in caves, doing what they could with Herod's men uh, close behind them, seeking them, seeking to destroy them. And actually, they did destroy many families on their, on their quest to find Jesus and destroy him. From the beginning, he was rejected. He was despised. Now, he could have been born in the palace. He could have been the son of Herod. He could have had an army of his own, but he chose the most humble and outcast circumstance he could possibly find. You know, I, I like to put it in these terms. It seems to match our modern circumstance here in Texas. He was a, an, an undocumented, illegal, fugitive alien on his way to Egypt. Fortunately, in those days, Egypt who had earlier enslaved the Jews, now 1,500 years later, they, they received 
the Jews. There were a number of Jews living in Egypt and even in Africa at that time, and Mary and Joseph and his family were received. After Herod died, they decided, all right, it's time to, to move back to Judea, but they found themselves in Galilee in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was the far outcast segment of the Holy Land. The, the Jews would frequently say, nothing good could ever come from Nazareth, and yet that's where Jesus chose to be raised. God became a man. He chose the most humble birth, the most humble childhood, and he chose to be raised in the most outcast part of, of Israel. So there he was growing up in a town, and we read that even in Nazareth, he was rejected by people. They had a name. You know, Joseph might have tried to explain to a few people, I know this seems unusual, but Mary and I were never really together, and, and uh, well, Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, but probably no one accepted that, and so they no doubt gave him the term Mamzer. And that was the term, term for a rejected little child uh, from whom literally men and women would turn their faces. So as little Jesus grew up in Nazareth, it wasn't unusual as he would run down the streets and walk from one place to the next, that the people thinking they were doing this in righteous indignation would literally turn their faces from Jesus. That's what Isaiah was speaking was, uh, speaking from, uh, regarding one who was rejected and despised and who experienced only that up, up really until the time when he was 12 years old and then went to the temple with his parents and uh, there the people finally began to see there's something special and anointed about this particular child. And so the question comes to us, why? Why did God choose such humility and rejection when he became a human being? Surely it would have been more impressive to all had he had wealth and power and esteem. But he emptied himself of all of that and became a servant. And here's why he did it. He did it so that he could relate to the rejected, to the despised, to the hated, to the lonely, to the poor, to the disenfranchised people on earth. And we see it over and over and over again in the New Testament when Jesus comes into contact with people. Rarely he came into contact with the wealthy, but when he did, he encouraged them to relate to the poor. But, but constantly when Jesus came into contact with people, it was with people who, like him, were rejected and despised and hated and alone. Uh, I, I could preach a sermon on each of these. I won't. I'll just mention them quickly. But for instance, there was the woman at the well in Samaria. And we know that the Jewish men were not even allowed to speak to a woman. Even the Samaritan men would not speak to this woman. Even the Samaritan women would not speak to this woman. In fact, she would go to the well in the heat of the day because no one else would be at the well when she was there because, well, she was, I, I guess, from the description, somewhat of a sexual addict. She uh, had been with numerous different men. The man that she was with right now was not her own husband. And the disciples, frankly, they weren't even, in their tradition, supposed to go into Samaria. I mean, those people were not like us, and we're not to associate with them. But Jesus said, come on, we're, we're going to Samaria today. 
And at that well, he addressed this woman as a friend. His, his ministry to her actually transformed her life. She ran back into town and told everyone what Jesus had done for her. There was the woman with the bleeding disorder in Mark chapter 5. Do you remember that story? In Jewish tradition, to have any issuance of blood was, it was so taboo. This woman had been embarrassed and shamed, very possibly because of the teaching of the Pharisees, her family had disowned her. She was probably alone and poor. And the Bible says, in fact, that she had spent all of her money on doctors. And if you really want to be uh, shocked sometimes, Google first century medicine and medical technique and see what this woman endured. Uh, she was so embarrassed and so ashamed and so rejected by, by everyone, including, again, possibly her family. Well, you know the story. She just snuck up behind Jesus and just kind of reached out and just touched the hem of his garment. He knew that power was coming out from himself, and he turned around and he addressed her, incidentally, as daughter. He was on his way to heal the daughter of a wealthy man, but he turned to this woman while the man was waiting and said, it's as if he were saying, I have daughters too, and this woman is, is my daughter. Over and over, when Jesus connected with people, it was not the powerful and the wealthy, it was the rejected and the despised and the hated. There were prostitutes, sinful women who were his friends. There was the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 7. Incidentally, uh, I'm mentioning a number of women here. Women themselves were seen as, as being a at best, second-class citizens, and certainly a rabbi, teacher, prophet, uh, messiah, such as Jesus, would not be expected to interact, but, but over and over again, he interacted not just with women, but with women who had been absolutely rejected by their society. There was the crippled man at Bethesda. There was the paralyzed man at Capernaum. There were lepers. There were tax collectors. Jesus was the friend of sinners. And so over and over, these were the ones he related to until finally his last conversation on earth before his death was with a fellow convict hanging on the cross next to him who said, I deserve to be here, but you don't. And Jesus said, you know what? We're together in this. And not only that, before this day is over, you and I are going to be in paradise together. Those were Jesus' kind of people, Pastor. And he teaches us that as he humbled himself for us, our attitude ought to be like that. In other words, he calls us to step outside of ourselves and not just reach out to others who are most like us, but to look for those who are most rejected and most alone, and most disenfranchised, and most despised and hated. That is our target group. Do uh, you remember a few years ago in the great church growth movement how we, we talked all about receptivity issues, Pastor, and we were taught, find out who your target is and reach for that target. And I'm here to say that God's target begins with the least on earth. Those who are least are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And those who are the greatest, the most powerful and most wealthy like us, we really have to struggle with this.
find a way to reach out to those who are the least, or we've missed God's target. Uh, Paul wrote about this in Philippians. See if I can find it here. Philippians chapter 2, where we read in, in verse 4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. And here it is. Your attitude, God help me, my attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And my attitude, God help me, is supposed to be like that. You know, uh, this is holiness. What we're talking about here is holiness. That somehow we allow the power of God's Spirit to work in us in such a manner that by His grace and mercy, because we just can't do this, we just don't have the power humanly to do this, that we allow ourselves to be set aside not just for our own well-being and salvation, but literally our lives set aside for God's purpose and cleansed by God for His purpose. Cleansed of the power and bondage of, of our sins, cleansed of the power of, of Satan and sin on earth today so that we can live lives by His grace. And it, for me, it frequently includes repentance and apology but that somehow we can live lives by God's grace that are pleasing to Him, but even more importantly, are useful to Him, that we can really make a difference in the world. And the Apostle Paul is saying, and Jesus was teaching, we do that not by looking to our own needs first, and that is certainly the direction of our world and culture, but we do so by looking first for those who are the most lonely, the most disenfranchised, even the most hated around us. This is the way of holiness. It's also the way of the Church of the Nazarene. And I still remember arriving 25 years ago, and the first thing I wanted to do was to learn the history of this church. How did Dallas First Church of the Nazarene get started, I wonder? And somebody had developed a, a nice little historical document. I don't know if it's still around. We ought to all have it. Uh, Pastor, if you could find it, I recommend that you print it up and, and give it to everybody. I, I think I saw it again at the 100th anniversary a few years ago. The history and heritage of this particular congregation is really phenomenal. But it began not as a uh, suburban, affluent uh, congregation. It began uh, many years ago by a man whose name was J.T. Upchurch. Now, I brought a picture of Brother Upchurch. I sent it over earlier, and I forgot to check earlier. I don't know if, if the PowerPoint is ready to go, but if so, there, there he is, Reverend and Mrs. J.T. Upchurch. He was the founding pastor of Dallas First Church of the Nazarene. But he didn't start as a Nazarene. He started as a minister in a mainline denomination, and the way he got into that denomination was he was saved at a holiness crusade that was being preached down in the Waco area by a Methodist preacher uh, back about 125 years ago when he was a young man. He grew up as, a, uh, as an outcast, as a, um, 
He grew up on the fringes of Waco society. His father had died when he was just a little boy. His mom then was a single mother trying to raise him and his siblings, and she was very poor. He went from foster care home to aunts and uncles, back to foster care. He, he lived a really rough life. In fact, he declared as a teenager, I don't know how God let this happen to my mother. I don't know how God let this happen to me, but I can tell you one thing. One thing I will never do, he said, is serve God. How could God put me in a situation like this? But then he went to that holiness revival where the Methodist preacher was preaching, and God gripped his life and told him, you know, I have a purpose for you. There's something I, I have in mind for you. I want you to serve me in a powerful way. So without really knowing what that meant, he just said yes and decided he would begin looking for what God had in store for him. And one day as he was walking through the streets of Waco in the red light district of Waco, which was between the church and his home, as he got on the way, he, he saw a, a prostitute who was being abused by men there in the street. And he stopped that action, and as he walked away from that, he got her situated and cared for, and as he walked away from that, God said, this is what I want you to do with your life. And so he began to look around and decide, where's the best place I can do this? And he found himself in Arlington, Texas, over on what is now the campus of the University of Texas, Arlington. There's actually a park there, Ross Douglas Park. And he decided, God wants me he was a Methodist minister. God wants me to do what I can to reach the women who are in the brothels and the single mothers, the saloon matrons, the, the women who are the outcasts of Dallas-Fort Worth society. So he set up a house, a home, a school, a clinic, a, a factory even for funding, and began to go to work reaching the women who were involved in the sex trafficking that was so prevalent in the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century, uh, Texas. It's still a huge problem for us today. I'm so thankful one of the churches in my district has a powerful ministry to, to women who are caught up in the, uh, the triple X industry here in the area. It's the kind of thing that JTF Church did. And he would go into the saloons in Fort Worth and Dallas, and he would find women who had been outcast, especially if they happened to have a baby, they were, they were pushed out of the saloons and brothels, and he would bring them into his, uh, under his wings there in Arlington, and he would minister to them. And many, many, many of them got saved. I think I have a picture of the home that he built over there. It was quite a, let's say, there it is, quite a, uh, uh, a major uh, establishment. But there was a problem because, well, his bishop didn't like the idea of reaching out to all of these uh, women with bad reputation. He's making our churches look bad to bring these women into our churches. And so we can't stand for that anymore. And so he had to leave his denomination. And he became a, a part of an independent ministry known as the Baraka Bible Fellowship. And it was housed right here on what had become the Baraka Home how would this name go over today? The Baraka Home for Wayward Women. <laughs> and the pastor he became of Baraka Bible Fellowship. And then finally, in 1908, when he heard that holiness ministers from all around the world were meeting up in Pilot Point, which incidentally is on my district as well, were meeting at Pilot Point to establish a new denomination, he went to that meeting 
and he brought his church, the Baraka Bible Fellowship, into the Church of the Nazarene in October of 1908. And the name of the new church was, say it with me, Dallas First Church of the Nazarene. I am so thankful for that heritage. That's, that's, I, got to, I tell people, and I, you know, 75 years later, I got to be the pastor of Dallas First Church of the Nazarene, from whom countless Nazarene churches on this district and on my district, throughout the Metroplex, all around the world have been spawned through the ministry that, became with, that began with Reverend J.T. Upchurch. Well, we have a, a new Asian Indian ministry on our district. You know, how, how, how does this relate to this story? Well, I'll tell you. Let's, let's see a picture of it. I think the next picture is going to be, I hope, of uh, you. Well, you can't see very well, but in the middle of that picture is Reverend uh, Premal Awarsamal. And I understand that Premal and Kavita came here, and uh, I know that uh, Philip and Ann Varghese are their friends and actually have helped sponsor this ministry. Don't mean to embarrass you with that, but I'll just tell you thank you publicly because uh, Pastor Premal and his wife have begun reaching out to the Asian Indian community primarily students at the universities here in this area, uh, about 95% of which are Hindu, and yet he has found a real openness, and already several have given their hearts to the Lord, and they have them in their home every Friday night. They have had a great ministry that's gone on for about a year now. It's far beyond what I expected it would be at this particular point. And on Easter Sunday, several months ago now, they were ready to actually begin Sunday morning worship services. And so they said, well, we're going to meet at a park over near the university. And so they met at Ross Douglas Park. And I was there. I preached someplace else in the morning, and then I came to their afternoon service. In fact, you can see me and Susan up there in that picture if you look close enough. While I was there, someone said, there's an old cemetery over here on the edge of the park. And I wondered to myself, could that be the grounds of the Baraka Home for Wayward Women, which later became Dallas First Church of the Nazarene? I'd been looking, for, well, for years, actually, for the grounds, and no one seemed to know where it was. So I walked over, and in the corner was a little cemetery, not much larger than this uh, sanctuary, and there was a little plaque that said, this cemetery is the, is the ground upon which, in, in 1904, J.T. Upchurch began the Baraka Home for Wayward Women. Sure enough, I walked in, and there were the graves of little children who had been born, and some of them died there. There were many graves with only the first names of women who had been brought out of the brothels and saloons of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I realized what holy ground I was standing on. Pastor, here's an idea for you. The last thing I should do is throw you an idea right in front of everybody, but it wouldn't be a bad thing for Dallas First Church to just go have a worship service on those grounds. It is holy grounds. It is the roots of, of this congregation right there in, in Arlington. I walked around, and uh, I, it was interesting. I had one or two of the Indian students with me. They had walked from the picnic area where the church service was over, and we were walking around there. And right in the middle of the uh, cemetery, I found this grave marker. Let's see the next one here. And now it's, you can barely even read it, and it's been toppled and broken. The, the stone that's lying uh, horizontally really once was vertical, and it was quite a, quite a thing. There's not a body there because it's a memorial of the first Nazarene missionary who ever died 
on the foreign field, and that was in, in India. And as I read her name, I saw that her name was Pearl Simmons. And as I did more research on her, I discovered that Pearl was a prostitute who had been brought out of a brothel in Fort Worth and brought to the Baraka Home for Wayward Women. And there, she found Jesus Christ as her personal Savior. And not long after that, her life was transformed as she yielded herself completely for God's service, and God called her to be one of the early, early Nazarene missionaries to, of all places, India. And there she became a, a martyr, really died uh, on the mission field as a Nazarene missionary. This woman from the brothel in Fort Worth who had found her way to what is now the birthplace of Dallas First Church of the Nazarene. And I have to tell you the irony, the beauty of the fact that I was standing there with a group of Indian students <laughs> who were now a part of a new Nazarene church out of our district. It, that irony was not lost to me of how if we as Christians humble ourselves and look to those who are in greatest need, God can do powerful and wonderful works in our midst. Some of you will remember Jerry Bailey. Jerry Bailey was a hardcore motorcycle rider that I met down in, in Waxahachie one day. Sunday after church, I loved the fact that we were one of the few Nazarene churches that didn't have a Sunday evening service at those days. I thought I was the most fortunate pastor in the world, a pastor of church that didn't have a Sunday evening service. And so, <laughs> our district superintendent didn't, didn't, didn't like that, by the way, but I was really happy with it. Got to actually spend some time with my family, and on some Sundays after church, I could get on my motorcycle and ride around the countryside. One Sunday afternoon in January, I was riding around in Waxahachie, and there was a fellow just, a and here I was, obviously, you know, a poser. I had on a leather jacket, and I was on a Harley, but it was pretty obvious that I was not a true, you know, biker, uh, though I was an enthusiast. But this guy rode up to me, and he was rough, tough stuff, you know. It was January. I was all bundled up. He had on a, a leather vest and a T-shirt, all kinds of mean-looking tattoos up and down his arm, and a ponytail and earrings, and just a rough guy. And he pulled right up beside me at the stoplight, and I, I didn't know what he was going to say. Maybe he was going to curse me or something, you know, for being such a poser. But uh, instead he said, hey, you want to get a cup of coffee? And my voice cracked, sure, I'd be happy to. Let's go. So we went over to the Waxahachie Whataburger. And we sat in the Waxahachie Whataburger and got to know each other. And I found out his story. A former Vietnam veteran, uh, heavy post-traumatic stress in his life. In fact, he was dealing from, with the effects of Agent Orange. His life was really tough. He wanted to know, what do I do? I said, well, I'm, I'm a pastor. A pastor? You mean like those guys on TV? I said, no, not really like that. I'm a pastor of a congregation over in, in uh, DeSoto, Dallas First Church of the Nazarene on Cockrell Hill Road. Oh, yeah, he said, that, that white building. I've, I've seen that over there. I said, yes, I'm the pastor of that church. He said, well, how in the world did you get to be a pastor? And I, I told him my story, which I probably mentioned here a time or two, but a young man in strong rebellion against God, uh, addicted to drugs and alcohol. My own life was an absolute mess. And then, amazingly, I went with Susan's youth group. Her parents wouldn't let me date her for good reason. I wouldn't have let me date her either, but they did let me go to church with her. So I went to her church. They went on a mission trip. And for the first time in my life, I told Jerry this story. I focused not on myself and my own needs, but on the needs of people 
who were much needier than me, and that's how I found Jesus Christ. And I said, God really dramatically changed my life, and now I'm the pastor of the greatest church in the world. And he said, uh, David, could God change my life? And I said, Jerry, God wants nothing more than to change your life. And so we prayed the sinner's prayer right there in the Waxahachie Whataburger. I pulled out a little picture I have of Jesus knocking at the door, and I showed him that, and I said, notice how the Jesus is on the outside and there's no doorknob. Somebody has to open it from the inside. And the Bible says that he's knocking on the door of your heart. And if you open the door, he'll come in and be your friend. Would you like to do that? And he said, I'd like that very much, David. I just met him 30 minutes earlier. And he said, uh, how do I do it? I said, well, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And you can just repeat this prayer after me. I thought maybe he would whisper it. But like most uh, Harley riders, his, uh, his hearing was bad. And so we sat in the walks at your Whataburger, and I said, okay, pray this. Dear God, I know that I've sinned. And he said, dear God, I know that I've sinned. And everybody in the <laughs> burger looked at him. And I, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry that I sinned. And I ask you to forgive my sins. And I open the door of my heart, and I invite you in. And he did. And, and you know, I, I, I don't know this, but Larry, I wonder if someday when I'm going to get to heaven, Somebody's going to tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, I'm here because of you. I said, really, how's that? And they'll say, well, one day I was sitting in the Waxahachie Whataburger, and there was this guy there, and he was praying out loud, and I prayed that prayer with him, or later I, I prayed that prayer. But Jerry prayed that prayer, and he was very serious about it. He said, will you tell this story to my wife, Nancy? So I said, okay, I'd be happy to. Let's set it up. He said, no, let's go right now. And we went to his house and told his wife, Nancy, she knelt on the, on the, in the living room around the coffee table. She gave her heart to the Lord. And then he started coming to church. And this is where this story is leading. This church accepted and loved Jerry as well as they ever accepted any attorney or doctor or businessman or politician or anyone else who ever attended this church. He showed up on Sunday with his big... Uh, 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 Heritage Soft Hill parked right out front. He had on his black leathers, his ponytail, his tattoos, and the works, and he walked in the door, and the first lady there greeted him with a loving handshake and friendliness, and everyone else. I, I've never been prouder of any church than I was of this church and how we received Jerry. He came to the men's prayer breakfasts that we had once a month. And uh, it was made up of, you know, we were all professionals in that group. There were attorneys and doctors and lawyers and businessmen, but they loved Jerry. He was as much a part of that group as, as anyone else. Remember, guys? Remember that? And do you remember the Saturday morning where we were talking about holiness and the men were giving the testimonies of their lives when they had not only accepted Christ as Savior, but had given themselves back over to God to be truly used by God? And Jerry put up his hand and said, could God do that for me? And uh, one of the men said, absolutely, Jerry. So remember this? Anyone remember this? Jerry knelt in the, right down in the fellowship hall, knelt on a chair. The men gathered around him, and he fully surrendered his heart and life to God. And that's when God really began to use him. Uh, he led others to the Lord. He had a, a sphere of influence that none of us had. And uh, I still remember one day we went back about a year or two later to the Waxahachie Whataburger for a reunion, salvation reunion. Let's ride out the walks of Hatchie and get a burger. And we sat there, and he pulled out of his pockets two little ball bearings, 
And he rolled them across the table. He said, I want you to have these. I said, well, what are these? He said, for years and years, he said, you know how angry I was and how bitter I was. Uh, he said, I, I saw things in Vietnam and did things that nobody should ever see or do. And my, I've carried the burden of guilt for all these years. But Jesus has taken that from me, he said. And uh, these little ball bearings were representative of my hate because frequently if somebody would cut me off in traffic or even look at me the wrong way I would take these ball bearings and throw them back through their windshield or bounce them up under the car and they'd get up into the engine area and do all types of damage and he said since I've given my heart to Jesus and since I've yielded my life completely to him he said I don't hate people anymore and I'm not angry like I used to be my my life has been transformed and he said I'm not going to need these and I wanted you to have them and pastor, I've still got, one of them I gave away to a young man who, after I told that story, gave his heart to Christ and accepted a call to ministry. So I just gave it to him, keep this. But the other one is in my top dresser drawer in the house, and I pull it out, and I look at it from time to time, and I think to myself, God still transforms the lives of those who are disenfranchised, who are hated, who are on the outskirts, who are lonely, who are filled with guilt and addiction. God still transforms lives like that when the body of Christ says we humble ourselves and we will not only receive anyone, we will seek after those who God will send our way and include them in our lives. So this is the story about one of those times I heard the voice of God. And then I'll close on this. I was superintendent for 10 years in East Ohio. We moved from here to Canton, Ohio. I served for pastor for only three years, and their superintendent resigned. And then next thing I knew, I was tapped to be the superintendent. And what I do is visit different churches. Every Sunday, I'm in a different church. And on that Sunday, I was at the Covenant Church of the Nazarene in Youngstown, Ohio. I don't know if there's anybody here who's lived in the Youngstown area or been there lately, but Youngstown was at the epicenter of the recession that hit back in the 80s and 90s in that area. We didn't experience it much here in, in the Dallas area, not nearly as much as they did in the Northeast, in the area that is now called the Rust Belt. The factories had closed down, the uh, politicians, <laughs> it seemed, were, were corrupt, the cities were almost bankrupt, there was a tremendous uh, uh, drug and alcohol and organized crime and gang uh, population, just the, the city was really, uh, really oppressed. And I was on my way to the Nazarene church to encourage them not to lose hope. In fact, I used to say to the pastors in that area, it was the hardest hit area in the United States. God had moved our family from a very affluent uh, setting and a very generous setting here in the, well, in, in this church to the center of, of the, uh, well, maybe the most oppressed part of the United States in the Great Lakes region there. And I would tell our pastors, we are fortunate that God trusts us enough that he's put us on the front lines of, of ministry like this. So let's, let's do our best. And I was on my way to New Covenant Church to tell them that that morning, but I arrived a little early, so I thought I'm going to run over to McDonald's and, and just get an Egg McMuffin or something. Well, when I got there, there was a drama set out in front of me that was taking place. There were a group of, and I, I know this Every time I hear myself say this, it sounds kind of judgmental or something. I don't mean it to sound this way, but there was a group of rough, tough-looking guys, 
pushing each other around and jostling each other and, and cursing, and they were profane and obscene, just standing around outside the McDonald's. Gang members, I guess. And I was a little intimidated by this. I thought, I think I'll just sit in the car and, you know, and just wait until, until it clears out a little bit. So I sat there, and then I saw drama unfold. Across the street walked a lone woman coming down and across the street toward the McDonald's. And again, whenever I tell this story, I feel some, uh, I don't know how, the best way to say it because I assumed, let me put it this way, the thought occurred to me then that perhaps this woman was a prostitute by the way she was dressed, uh, by the way she interacted with the men who were there. It was unusual that she would be out so early on a Sunday morning, but she was definitely uh, uh, disheveled and uh, she had been through some, some trauma. It was obvious. And it didn't get easier as she came across the street to where the men were because they began to mock her and to uh, abuse her even. I think they pushed her around a little bit. They called her names. They were, they were crude and rude to this, to this woman. So I got out of the car and walked over to, to the front door where they were all standing. And I don't know if it was because I was in a dark suit or what it was, but they stepped back. They were quiet. Maybe they thought I was an FBI agent or something. That's what I'd like to think. It probably wasn't that. Somebody said maybe there were angels overhead. I, I don't know. I just know that, boy, was I relieved when they stepped back and let me open the door. And I opened the door for the lady. She walked in, and she stood at the counter here, and I stood over here, and I ordered my breakfast on my expense account, a big breakfast, you know, all the things I love at McDonald's and at McGriddle and a large coffee and a large orange juice, and I was excited about that coming. And while I ordered that and gave them my credit card, the district credit card, she stood here in her coin purse and uh, began to pull nickels and quarters. Finally, she said to me, sir, I'm, I'm a little short this morning. Would you be able to help me with my breakfast? And I said, certainly, I'd, I'd be glad to. And I, uh, you know, I, well, actually the East Ohio District bought her breakfast that morning, and so she had a big breakfast, and I went on about my way. I was running a little late now, and so I took my breakfast with me and got in the car and drove over to the church and ate my breakfast in the parking lot, went inside and preached. And when I preached that day, I was preaching from Matthew chapter 25. And I won't preach from that passage right now, as it's about time for us to go, but I'll just remind you what that story is there. It's the story of the sheep and the goats. And it's the story of Jesus telling the church what the judgment will be like. And he said, at the judgment day, the, the, the judge, the father, is going to separate everyone into two categories. Remember the story? Sheep and goats. And the sheep will be on his right side, and the goats will be on the left side. And as you can imagine, the sheep are the ones who are going to go to heaven, and the goats are the ones who will not go to heaven. And he said, the father will say to the sheep, I'm paraphrasing here, I want to thank you. Now, they weren't, I'm sure the sheep won't be ready to hear that unless they're familiar with the story. Why, you're about to let us into heaven and you're thanking us? Hey, we're the grateful ones here. We, in our hearts, we realize that we don't really deserve to be here, but you, by your grace, you're allowing us to go in. The sheep are the ones who should be saying thank you, but it's the Father who says, I want to thank you. Well, why? Well, because I was, I was hungry and you gave me some food. And I was an outcast. I was in prison even. And you came to visit me. 
And I, I, was, uh, I was naked and you clothed me, and I was sick and you, you cared for me, and I just want to say thank you. So come on in. But they said, wait a minute, when, when did we, I'm sorry, you know, and you would expect the sheep to be like this, not trying to take credit for something that they didn't think they deserved credit for. So, so Lord, excuse us, I don't mean to contradict you here, but Together as a group, we don't remember ever seeing you naked and clothing you. And when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? And when did we ever visit you in prison or care for you when you were sick? And uh, Jesus told the church, his disciples, that on that day, the judge will say to the sheep, I tell you the truth, whenever you did those things to the least of my children, you did them for me. So, come on in to the kingdom. And I won't go into this much, but he had the same conversation with the goats. Whenever you didn't do it, whenever you thought only of yourselves and not of others, when you cared only about those who were like you, and privileged like you, but forgot about the least, you forgot about me. So, off with you. I was preaching from that passage there, and I was going to apply it to the church about reaching out to the impoverished communities all around them and to the disenfranchised in their community, which is a, a large population in Youngstown, Ohio. And all of a sudden, while I preached, I had my Bible, this Bible, open to this page. I heard the voice of God. And it was so powerful. This happened to me only a handful of times in my whole ministry. But it was so real that I, I stepped back like this. I couldn't even continue the message for a while. It took me some time to recover and get through the rest of the message. But I, I knew that I knew that I'd heard the voice of God. And this is what he said to me. It was very simple. He knew my name. I heard him say to me, David, thank you for breakfast. Pastor, may I have the privilege of praying for you people? Let's, let's bow our heads. Oh, God, I thank you today for Dallas First Church of the Nazarene. And I am so grateful that I had the privilege, as Larry does now, as Wayne did before, I had the privilege of pastoring this unique and wonderful congregation. And I thank you in their presence for their generosity to us, for the love that my children experienced here, for the acceptance that my wife and I experienced. We were just, just getting back into American culture, experiencing some real reverse culture shock, and this group loved us and cared for us. and It changed our lives, really. I'll, I'll always be grateful. Many of them are still in this room right now. Thank you, thank you, thank you for them. I'm thankful, Lord, that I got to be a part of a church that was connected to somebody like J.T. Upchurch and the roots and the ministry of Dallas First Church over the, the century, oh Lord. And I got to be here and see them when they accepted Jerry and Nancy Bailey, cared for them and loved them, though they were as different from most of us as anybody could possibly be and how his life was so transformed through the acceptance of this church I've talked, by the way, to the group, I've talked to him from time to time, and he still loves the Lord. The Agent Orange kicked into his life. He's 
no longer able to ride his motorcycle or even walk, but he knows the love of Jesus. He knows your love in his heart, Lord. It's really a, it's because of this group. I thank you. I thank you for them. Now, Lord, I, I think the whole body of Christ in America and certainly the Church of the Nazarene in the Metroplex, we're at a crossroads again where we have to decide who's our target going to be. Is it going to be more folks just like us, and that's the most comfortable thing? Or can we be open to the lonely, the addicted, the disenfranchised, the minorities, the immigrants? Can we be open to those who, to us, seem to be on the fringes to you, Lord? They are the, they are the bullseye of your target. This would be my prayer, my humble prayer for this congregation. And I pray it uh, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. If you enjoyed that, would you say amen?